The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show for those who can never know enough about history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're looking at the time when a new contraceptive option was made available to American women. One that, while not perfect, was far more reliable and far less intrusive than anything else on the market. The day was May 9, 1960. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the first commercially produced birth control pill. It was called Enovid, and just one month after its approval, the G.D. Searle Company of Chicago began selling it in 10 milligram doses. The main active ingredient was a synthetic form of progesterone, a steroid hormone that occurs naturally in the menstrual cycle of humans and other species. Unfortunately, the approved dose of Enovid was later determined to be 10 times too high, and as a result, some early adopters experienced severe side effects including life-threatening blood clots. Further refinements eventually led to lower-dose versions of the pill, which were far safer and more effective at preventing pregnancy. Development of the pill began at the behest of Margaret Sanger, an American activist, writer, and nurse who had long campaigned for a better method of birth control for American women. In 1950, Sanger, then in her early 70s, met with a biochemist named Gregory Pincus at a Manhattan apartment. She urged him to begin research into a reliable, safe, and inexpensive alternative to traditional contraceptives like condoms and diaphragms. Her vision was for a new, women-controlled form of birth control, a pill as easy to take as an aspirin. What Sanger asked of Pincus that evening was a tall order, not just in terms of the science, but also due to the legal risk. At the time, more than half the states still had criminal restrictions against selling or distributing contraceptives, 
so developing an all-new one in your private lab likely would have been frowned upon as well. Nonetheless, Pincus agreed to give it a shot and quickly developed a research theory centered on the use of progesterone. That natural hormone plays an important role in maintaining the early stages of pregnancy, but Pincus wondered what might happen if it were introduced to the body prior to pregnancy. His belief was that a woman's reproductive system would more or less be fooled into thinking that she was pregnant already, and would then respond by suppressing any further conception. Pincus tested his theory on rats and rabbits, but the success rate of chemically produced progesterone wasn't quite as high as he had expected. His search for a more potent form of the hormone eventually led him to a synthetic variant derived from a wild Mexican yam called Barbasco. Pincus struck a deal with a pharmaceutical company in Chicago, Searle, that produced the synthetic hormone, and in 1954, he and colleague John Rock began running clinical tests of a pill that used synthetic progesterone and estrogen to repress ovulation in women. Much of the funding for this research was donated by Catherine McCormick, a philanthropist and friend of Margaret Sanger, who followed every stage of the project from conception to market, though she rarely gets the credit she deserves. In 1957, the FDA approved the use of Enovid, not for birth control, but for menstrual disorders. Tens of thousands of women went on to use the drug over the next few years, and in 1959, Searle submitted an application for its approval as a contraceptive. The company and the pill researchers expected the application to sail through the FDA's review process. After all, the drug had already been deemed safe for public use. However, that's not how things shook out. Instead, the FDA sat on the application for months, going back and forth on whether or not to approve it. The delay wasn't so much due to concerns over Enovid's safety or effectiveness. It was more that the agency had never seen a medicine quite like it. The pill was the first drug that wasn't designed to treat or cure a medical ailment. Instead, it would be prescribed to healthy women on a long-term basis for a purely social purpose. The FDA was uneasy with that concept, and so too were many Americans who objected to birth control on religious grounds. It took a bit of prodding from the researchers behind the pill, but eventually, on May 9, 1960, the FDA approved the contraceptive usage of Enovid. By the end of 1961, more than 400,000 American women were taking the pill. By the end of 1963, the number had grown to 2.3 million, and by 1965, it had more than doubled again, with more than 5 million American women on the pill, accounting for about 40% of all young married women in the country. Similar oral contraceptives were soon approved for use in other countries as well. Journalist and playwright Claire Booth Luce celebrated the pill's rising global influence, writing, quote, Modern woman is at last free as a man is free, to dispose of her own body, to earn her living, to pursue the improvement of her mind, to try a successful career. Those words were especially true after 1972, when the U.S. Supreme Court finally made the pill legally available to everyone. Prior to that, only married couples looking to plan their families were given the right to use the pill, and many states had laws against distributing contraception of any kind to single people. 
Those restrictions finally ended in the early 1970s when the court ruled that treating married and unmarried people differently violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth Amendment. As you might imagine, Searle made a fortune off of Enovid, though the company's monopoly on the oral contraceptive market was fairly short-lived. Other early branded pills stole some of its thunder, as did growing concerns over the medication's connection to health problems, such as thrombosis. Still, Enovid continued to be prescribed in lower doses until 1988, when its production was discontinued for good. Today, the pill is the most common contraceptive used by women in the US, the UK, and many other countries. And four out of five sexually experienced women are thought to take it at one time or another. That's a situation that's unlikely to change anytime soon, but it's worth noting that hormonal contraceptives for men have been in development since the 1970s, and one recently passed initial human safety tests. That means a male version of the pill could be ready in less than a decade. Some believe it will be a shakeup that could usher in a golden age of reproductive freedom for everyone. But if the history of women's birth control is anything to go on, we'll probably just argue about it endlessly instead. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays and Ben Hackett for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. Girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.